0: Welcome to to down-to-earth but heavenly-minded podcast. You can have a happy life. Part 1 of 2, by E. C. Hadley. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. John chapter 15 verse 11 Why are so many Christians restless, worried and unhappy? Even though the verse above tells us clearly that this is not what God intends for his children. In this booklet, we hope to address this question to discover God's remedy so that we might be able to say with Paul, I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content, Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. Burden of guilt. One of the basic causes of unhappiness is a sense of guilt that burdens the conscience and robs the soul of peace. Before we can have true happiness there must be peace with God. If there are any doubts about our peace with God, there can be no settled peace in the soul. If we are to succeed in finding peace, and the happiness that results from it, we must begin with this question of guilt and how it can be removed. Guilt destroys happiness and peace, it breaks down self esteem and robs us of self confidence. How can we trust ourselves when we know that we have done many wrong things? We may try to run away from our conscience by pursuing earthly pleasure, or we may attempt to quiet its voice by reasoning that times have changed, and that now everybody does it. Still, there is that uneasy feeling that something is not right. We instinctively know that God has not changed and that sin never ceases to be sin. No matter how much we try to repress the guilty feeling, it is still there, making us restless, uneasy and fearful. Coupled with a sense of guilt is a consciousness that we deserve to be punished. This increases our fear. God, who knows all about this, has said, be sure your sin will find you out, Numbers chapter 32 verse 23. We cannot have peace and true happiness until the question of our guilt is settled in a way that is just. Our God implanted conscience, part of the moral nature of man, makes us feel guilty when we have done something wrong. It also makes us realize that we deserve punishment. Some try to ease the guilt by joining a church and getting involved in religious activities, but they know deep down that this will never bring peace. Dealing with guilt. Guilt produces a fear of God whom we know we have offended, and a fear of the punishment we instinctively know we deserve. There is only one way to lift this depressing sense of guilt and fear. It is through justification by faith in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. In the epistle to the Romans, Paul deals directly with the question of our guilt and God's answer to it. There we read that all the world is guilty, but God provides the means for our justification, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 to 24, 26. In that same epistle, we also read of the results of that justification, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, Romans chapter 5 verses 1, 11. God's way not only lifts the depressing load of guilt, but also gives us a consciousness of God's love that produces joy. The guilt that once made us tremble at the thought of judgment now becomes the means by which we measure the love of God, who did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us. The memory of our guilt, becomes a wellspring of thanksgiving to God who redeemed us and justified us. How can a guilty soul have peace with a holy God? The only answer is through the blood of the cross, without shedding of blood there is no remission, for sin Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22. On the cross, Christ was made an offering for all our sins, and he bore the punishment due our sins, Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4-6, 10. This suffering and death of Christ are the only grounds upon which a righteous God and a guilty creature can be at peace. Seeking peace. Once a sinner acknowledges his sin, his first concern is how to obtain peace with God. But the great question is not, how can a sinner make peace with his God? It is, how can a holy sin-hating God make peace with this sinner? God accomplished this by giving his Son as the sacrifice for sin, having made peace through the blood of his cross Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. It is not by any effort of the sinner that peace is made, God has already made peace through the blood of the cross. Peace with God does not depend upon our feelings. We may deceive ourselves into believing we will come out all right in the end. But such false peace is the fruit of unbelief, for God plainly states, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God (Romans chapter 3 verse 23. The only way to true peace is repentance, the Bible says, unless you repent you will perish, Luke chapter 13 verse 5. The first step to true peace then is to accept this fact. The next step is to believe God's evaluation of the sacrifice of Christ, who, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Peace is an accomplished fact, and God is so satisfied with that sacrifice for our sins that he has placed his son at the right hand of his own throne in glory to prove it. God always sees the believer as clothed in all the merits of that sacrifice which washed away all his sins once for all and obtained eternal redemption for him Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 Therefore God's attitude of peace towards the believer is unchanging because the sacrifice upon which it is based is perfect However the measure to which the believer enjoys it may vary greatly If we get self occupied we may lose the sense of it We can only enjoy it as we rest in full assurance of faith in the sacrifice of Christ We may know that God is at peace with us through Christ and still not have a sense of the peace of God ruling in our hearts. Sin may bring us under the chastening hand of God. In chastening, he is only seeking to deliver us from those things which are robbing our souls of the enjoyment of his peace. See Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 to 11. He chastens in love, not counting us as enemies, but always as his well-beloved children. Obedience needed. The conscience enlightened by the word of God demands obedience to God who loves us and has redeemed us. If we do those things which displease him, or if we leave undone things he wants us to do, our conscience accuses us and inward conflict results. We have no peace because we cannot quiet the voice of our conscience. Besides the conscience, every believer in Christ also has the spirit of God abiding in him. See Romans chapter 8 verses 9, 15, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19. One activity of the Spirit of God is to bring to our hearts the love of God, and to show the things of Christ to us, Romans, John chapter 16 verse 14. Both give joy and peace to the soul, but the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. The constant effort of the Spirit of God is to oppose the flesh and prompt us to do the will of God in obedience to the word of God. If we yield to the flesh we throw ourselves into conflict, not only with our conscience, but also with the spirit. On the other hand, if we yield to the Holy Spirit and to our conscience, he gives us the strength to do the will of God. And what happens then? Instead of inward conflict, we are in harmony with God, his word, and his spirit, and consequently we enjoy a deeper sense of his love and a fuller measure of his joy and peace. When we walk in obedience to God's revealed will, we enjoy his love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, 1st John chapter 4 verse 9, Romans chapter 5 verses 5 to 8. Then we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8 verse 31. Trouble may be all around, but we will not fear because Psalm chapter 4 verse 8 tells us, I will both lie down in peace, and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. If we are disobedient. The peace of his presence will be lost and our conscience will accuse us while the Holy Spirit convicts us. When the word of God is neglected, the soul does not enjoy peace. The power of God, which gave the heart confidence while walking with him, will now work to humble us. We will meet with disappointment. Plans will be overthrown. Things we thought would be sweet to the taste become bitter. He uses circumstances to make us taste the bitterness of disobedience and to break down self-will. His chastening hand is felt. God working. How graciously God works to bring us to our senses. Waywardness not only dishonors him but also robs us of joy and peace. If God allowed us to continue in the path of disobedience, we would eventually have to reap the consequences. But in love, he lets us feel his chastening hand and uses circumstances to break down our rebellion to his will. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 to 12 tells us, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves he corrects just as a father the son in whom he delights. A loving father may have to chasten his child for his own good. A child may doubt the motives of the father, but the child's inability to discern the father's purpose does not change the father's love or methods. If the child had more confidence in his father, he would believe him, even though unable to understand. This makes it easier to yield to the father's will and obtain peace as well. Confidence in God is necessary to enjoy peace. The Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and conscience through chastening and the Word to bring us to confess waywardness and turn again to the paths of righteousness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews chapter twelve verse eleven. Humbled under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter chapter five verse six, the soul is once more able to walk in the path of righteousness and reap its peaceable fruits. If we learn the lesson of God's chastening we acquire peace. If we keep his commandments we gain even more because in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm chapter 19 verse 11. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with the whole heart. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Psalm chapter 119 verses 2, 165. Peace of mind these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, John chapter 16 verse 33. When we read the account of the mock trial of our Lord, one thing really strikes us, him standing peacefully in the midst of that mocking, hypocritical mob. How could he do it? He gives us his secret in John chapter 16 verse 32, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. He was in perfect submission to his Father's will, whatever the cost. He was with his Father throughout the ordeal, and so his peace was never interrupted. His father's plan was perfect and his faith looked on to the glorious results of that wonderful plan. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Now he has overcome the world and sat down in the glory. All power in heaven and earth is given into his pierced hand. What peace for our hearts and minds. He has a perfect plan for each one of his own. Let us trust him then, knowing that his will is best. When we walk with him, there is blessing and peace in our future, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Why do we complain about our circumstances when his pierced hands are guiding us and his infinite wisdom has planned the future for us? Either we don't trust him or we don't want to go the way he is taking us. Our deceitful heart manifests itself by not trusting him who died for us and into whose pierced hands all power in heaven and earth has been given. For our own good, we must surrender to him. The potter is forming a useful vessel. Should the clay rebel when it feels the pressure of his fingers as he molds, turns and shapes it on the spinning wheel? Trust in him. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. John chapter sixteen verse thirty-three. Our circumstances may not change, our sorrows may not be removed, but if Christ is brought into our grief, we will be able to say with the psalmist, "You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance." Peace. Thirty-two to seven. His wisdom cannot err. His power cannot fail. His love can never change. Even his direct dealing with us is for our deepest spiritual gain. Knowing this should lead us to say in the midst of sorrow, pain, and loss, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, Job chapter 1 verse 21. About our fears. One of the greatest hindrances to peace and security is fear, of sickness, accidents, death, job loss, financial trouble and so on. How can we have inner peace in a world full of injustice, conflict and uncertainty, where life is one long struggle for existence? Job confessed that even in his great prosperity he was harassed by fears, the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, I have no rest, for trouble comes, Job chapter 3 verses 25 to 26. If we had a father who was very wise, had inexhaustible resources, and would do anything for our good, wouldn't that calm our fears and give us a sense of security? As a child of God we have all this in our Heavenly Father. If he invites us to cast all our cares upon him, because he cares for us, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7, why then can't we turn our fears over to him? Is it because we are afraid he will let us down? Is it because we are not willing to submit our wills to him? Are we letting the devil get the best of us by making us feel we would be the losers if we completely surrendered our lives to him? We cannot leave God out of our lives and have freedom from fear. In the deep recesses of our souls we know that God exists and has almighty power. If we are not giving God his rightful place, we will have fear even though we may refuse to admit it. Denying God produces fear. It's as simple as that. Fear is the painful sensation that danger threatens. The danger may be real or imagined, but the fear is real. Anxiety and worry are forms of fear. Anxiety is fear of anticipated danger. Worry is a brooding over these anxious fears. Fear, anxiety and worry sap our energy and undermine our peace of mind. They are like weeds that grow and crowd out the flowers in our garden of happiness. Where do these weeds come from? Is there no way of getting rid of them? Has God left us with no way to cope with them, confessing our sin. The Bible traces these fears to their real source and gives us the only effective remedy, God is love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love, 1 John chapter 4 verses 16, 18. Nothing will cast out fear like confidence in God's perfect love. Since love has blotted out all our sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we can be sure that God has forgiven them and will never again hold us accountable for them. An accusing conscience, that says that punishment is due us, is one of the major causes of anxiety, fear and worry. Genesis gives us the first record of fear that man had. In the Garden of Eden, after he had eaten the forbidden fruit, the Lord said to Adam, where are you? Adam's response was, I heard your voice in the Garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. Genesis chapter 3 verses 9 to 10. He was afraid because he knew he had sinned and deserved to be punished. Down deep we know that sin deserves punishment, and that there will be no deliverance, until the things that are troubling our conscience are cleared up in a way that is satisfactory to God. When our conscience is troubled, we may try to forget our sins. It is natural to push them out of our mind or repress them altogether. But we can never really succeed, because deep in the unconscious mind the memory of them keeps surfacing in one form or another. We may not be fully conscious of the fact that sin and self will are the cause of our anxious fears. It is so easy to deceive ourselves and make ourselves believe that someone or something else is responsible. However, we will never get rid of our fears or have any real peace until we admit the truth and get things right with God. A young lady, brought up in a Christian home, began to do things that her conscience condemned. Unwilling to admit them and confess them to God, she began to persuade herself first that God didn't care, and then that there was no God. For several years she claimed to be an atheist. But the sin in her life gradually developed into anxiety and fear. She finally felt like she was losing her mind and ended up in a mental hospital. Many remedies were tried, but no relief came until she faced the fact that she was trying to rule God out of her life. Once she confessed her sins and surrendered to God, she was able to leave the hospital with her anxieties and fears gone and her mind clear. Joy of forgiveness. We have to be conscious of God's forgiveness and his perfect love to have our fears cast out. But we can't have confidence in Him until we are sure we are forgiven. We can't have this assurance while we are unwilling to confess our sins to Him. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John chapter one verses eight to nine. There are three steps we must take to really get rid of anxiety and fear. One, recognize the sin that is at the root of our anxious fears. 2. Believe that God really does forgive our sins when we confess them. 3. Put our sins, along with the anxiety and fear they produce, out of mind. Whenever they do come to mind again, instead of feeling anxiety, we will be reminded and thankful that God has forgiven them all. When we take these three steps, we will be able to say with the psalmist, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff." they comfort me, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm chapter 23 verses 1, 4, 6. A little child awakened by a storm cries out in fear. His father comes and takes him in his arms. Soon the child is asleep again. The storm has not ceased but the child's confidence in his father gives him a sense of security and removes his fear. Path of Peace What comfort and peace would come if we would just cast ourselves fully on him and willingly let him plan our life. His plan is infinitely better than anything we could ever work out for ourselves. His plan embraces all the details of our life here, and also has in view our eternal happiness. What comfort to have him as our shepherd, caretaker and friend, to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm chapter 23 verse 1. Rest and satisfaction belong to the believer who is willing to trust and follow the shepherd, he leads me beside the still waters verses two. The storms may rage around us, but when we are close to him, we are at peace. If we are in a place of unrest, we can be sure he has not led us there, though he may let us pass that way to teach us how bitter it is not to listen to him. Are we listening to his voice in our daily life? Are we following him step by step regardless of how rough the road? He says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, John chapter 10 verse 27. What a comfort to have such a friend going all the way with us in every trouble, great or small. What a path the Christian is called to follow. The almighty creator and sustainer of this vast universe gave his life for us and now ever lives to comfort, counsel, guide and lead us. How is it that we let Satan get our eyes off Christ and rob us of our peace, giving us unrest and fear instead? Satan wants us to doubt and fear. Will we yield to him or to the loving hand of God? Which path will we follow? That of sight that sees only the storm upsetting our plans, or that of faith that sees our good shepherd's loving hand guiding us into a fuller communion with himself? Are we in trouble? Do we fear tomorrow? Are we sick, sorrowing or in debt? Dear child of God, Christ died for us. Do not distrust his love. By these very trials he is working out for us a deeper joy and happiness than we could ever have any other way. Paul triumphantly shouts in the midst of great troubles and distresses, we do not lose heart, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 to 18. The language of faith is brave because the eye of faith does not let the things seen occupy the mind. They are seen only as the elements that God is using to develop a richer, fuller spiritual life in us. We must keep our eye on him who will lead us into peace and out of fear. Certainly, there are trials in the path of faith, but each trial is a door to richer joy and peace in Christ. Don't shrink back at the entrance. If we do, we will find that there are greater trials in the path of unbelief, which are always bitter and disappointing in the end. Christ endured the cross for us. If he sees fit to lead us through trying times, he will sustain us so that our joy will be richer for having endured the trial. As Paul met new trials, his eyes were on the, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, that would come to him because of them. He was not looking at his troubles in the light of the present, but in the light of the future eternal results. If our heart is not at peace, what do we think we need to make it so? Write down what it is and take a good look at it. Now honestly ask, would its attainment restore the peace and quiet we want in our soul? Satan wants us to think, as Eve did, that what God has withheld is something to be desired. See Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. Be sure that peace for our soul is found in our willingness to let God have his way in our circumstances. Following the shepherd. The shepherd is waiting for us to follow him. We will gain nothing by murmuring and rebelling against his purposes, we will only make our misery greater. But, if we yield to him, then he will fill our heart with joy and peace. If there is failure and sin, we must confess it, and believe that he forgives it according to his promise, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. What comfort for the weakest child of God who is submissive enough to trust him, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you, in Yah, the Lord. Is everlasting strength, Isaiah chapter 26 verses 3 to 4. To the extent that we are able to do this, we will have a steady peace which changing circumstances cannot take away. It is a great thing to be persuaded by the Lord's love. The Lord of heaven and earth loves us with an everlasting love which fills the heart and casts out fears. There is no other remedy. We do not need to say, I am resolved in the future to do better. That would be leaning on self. Don't do it. Just say over and over again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All his resources are mine. I can lean on him. But if we refuse to hear his voice, his blessings will be far from us and we will have nothing but self to fall back on in the shifting circumstances of life. Whether we admit it or not, when we are out of touch with the shepherd, we are in trouble. Is there anything then that we cannot submit to, if it is the will of him who sacrificed himself on the cross for us? Adjusting our attitudes. It is not circumstances that make us happy or unhappy, but our attitude towards them. We are always striving to control our circumstances, and are able to do so to some degree. But many circumstances are beyond our control. Our tendency is to become discontented or even bitter when things do not go the way we want them to go. We act like children, crying or sulking or throwing a tantrum when we can't have our own way. On the other hand, some are able to make the best of what can't be changed by adjusting to their circumstances. Paul said, "I have learned in whatever state I am to be content." Philippians chapter four, verse eleven. A Christian knows he is a beloved child of God, and that his Father has all circumstances under control, allowing only those things that are for our greatest good. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight. This is true without qualification. We are able to face whatever circumstance comes up and say with assurance, "My Father has a lesson for me to learn. He has a blessing for me in this." He's giving me a golden opportunity to exercise patience, submission, faith and confidence in him as his child. Read the life of Christ in the Gospel. Look at the circumstances he passed through. They were surely not what the natural man would like, fleeing for his life to Egypt as a baby. Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 to 14, working as a carpenter in the despised town of Nazareth, Mark. 6-3, 6-3, John chapter 1 verse 46, having nowhere to lay his head, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, called crazy by his friends, Mark 3.21, called a demoniac by the crowd, John chapter 8, verse 48. What scoffing he endured. But he received all these circumstances from his father's hand and found in him an opportunity to manifest his divine nature. Now each child of God has been made a partaker of that same divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He has Christ as his life. So all the circumstances we are passing through are God-given opportunities to let Christ take over and live out his life through us. This is exactly what Paul meant when he said, for to meet, to live is Christ, Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. This should be the Christian's attitude toward the circumstances of life, and what a different outlook it gives to everything. No longer are things seen by human standards as trying and distasteful. They are now golden opportunities to develop our spiritual life as children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights, Philippians chapter 2 verse 15. Even afflictions when looked at this way become an occasion for thanksgiving, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 16 to 18. A positive Christian attitude brings true contentment to the child of God. All things are viewed as coming from the tender hands of a loving father and are opportunities to learn valuable lessons in self-control, patience, faith and obedience, while gaining a rich blessing. Outward circumstances don't make us happy or unhappy, but our inward attitude towards them and towards God in them. Songwriter Bill Gaither puts it this way, I found happiness, I found peace of mind, I found the joy of living, perfect love sublime, I found real contentment, happy living in accord, I found happiness all the time wonderful peace of mind when i found the lord peace assured the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through christ jesus philippians chapter 4 verse 7 who does not desire such an experience the perfect peace of god himself filling our hearts and minds but why just desire it when we can have it it is there for every child of god who wants it enough to meet the conditions our creator is the only one who fully understands the workings of our minds and all those feelings that well up in our hearts Some of us have more emotional stability than others and do not swing as far and as often between extremes. Yet how few really know much of the perfect peace so necessary for true happiness. No matter how much or how little we have experienced this sweet peace, we want more. If we are hungry and neglect to eat the food God has provided to satisfy hunger, we can't blame others if we starve. Neither can we blame others if we are unhappy but don't make use of God's provision for happiness. The whole fault lies in us. It is important that we face this squarely, otherwise we will never make use of God's provisions. In Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 we read his first provision, which is trust, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. In Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 to 7 we find the other two, which are prayer and thanksgiving, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. These three things, trust, prayer and thanksgiving, can give peace of heart and mind only to those who have full assurance of salvation. Many have assurance of sins forgiven, they know they are saved and have no doubt about their eternal security through the finished work of Christ. Yet they are often unhappy because they do not have that peace they desire and which God intends for them. They are neglecting these three simple tools. Trusting God, what hinders us from trusting God? To trust him we must first surrender ourselves to him. No child can trust his father while walking in self-willed rebellion against him. Neither can one confide in God while walking in disobedience to him. We know that he will not help us with something that is contrary to his word. Our failure to believe that God's way is always best makes it hard to yield fully to him and trust him with all our heart. With distrust comes lack of confidence. With lack of confidence comes restlessness and unhappiness. When Satan talked Eve into believing that God was withholding something good from her, she began to distrust God. He had told Adam that if they ate the forbidden fruit they would die, Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. But Eve looked at the forbidden tree and decided that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. She relied on her own judgment instead of yielding to God. What unhappiness she plunged herself into. Today this is still the root cause of all the unhappiness in the world. Keep this fact clearly in mind, if we want happiness and peace we must stop thinking we know better than God what will make us happy. We need to be willing to yield to him and let him have his own way with us. His infinite love and his infinite knowledge assure us that he knows what is best for us. His infinite power guarantees his ability to make it happen. We cannot let our thoughts go astray, we must keep them on him. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 tells us the Lord will keep us in perfect peace if we keep our minds on him and keep trusting him. Why let our thoughts run wild with anxious fear? The Lord has all things under control. He is, after all, the one who is above all and able to change all, and he wants to do what is for our greatest good. If we trust him completely and keep our thoughts on him, we will have peace of heart and mind. Notice in the Psalms how often David talked to himself about God's care for him when he was cast down and harassed with fears. He was taught by God to do this, and was inspired to write these experiences for our encouragement. For example, when depressed and fearful he wrote, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God, Psalm chapter 42 verse 11. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, Psalm chapter 116 verses 6 to 7. The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, for in the time of trouble he shall hide me. Psalm chapter 27 verses 1, 3, 5. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God I have put my trust, I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Psalm chapter 56 verses 3 to 4. We can never go wrong if we follow David's simple method of exhorting our own souls. It is not only psychologically correct, but also scripturally sound. We need to learn these verses and repeat them over and over again when we feel depressed, fearful or discouraged. Doing this will work wonders for us just as it did for David and many others who have followed his example. It will help to keep our minds fixed on the Lord instead of on our feelings or circumstances. Provision of Prayer Prayer is a wonderful provision of God to ease our burdens, tensions and fears, and restore peace to our hearts and minds. The value of prayer as a vital factor in a life of peace and happiness can never be overestimated. See Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 to 7. When we speak of the relationship of prayer to happiness, we are not talking about a few minutes spent each day repeating a stereotyped form of petition. Scriptural prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in simple childlike trust, trust in him at all times, you people, pour out your heart before him, God is a refuge for us, Psalm chapter 62 verse 8. A school child comes to his father and says, Father, will you help me solve this problem? I don't understand it. From this honest, simple request we can learn seven simple steps that govern effective prayer 1. The child is conscious that he is in the presence of another person. 2. This person has the ability to solve his problem. 3. There is a relationship that the child is sure of, he's talking to his father. 4. He has confidence that his father has a personal interest in him and his problem. 5. He openly confesses his need for help with the problem. 6. He states his problem as clearly as he can. 7. He confidently waits on his father to show him the solution. When we take these same seven steps and apply them to our prayer lives, they become simple rules for effective prayer. 1. When we pray, visualize in our souls that we are addressing a person who is just as present as any earthly father could be. 2. Think for a moment of who he is and of his infinite power, wisdom and ability to understand and solve our problems. 3. Be conscious of our relationship with him, he has made us his children, he is our father, 4. As our father, he has a very personal interest in us and our problems, more than any earthly father ever could. If he gave up his dear son to die on the cross for us, we can be sure he is ready to give all that we need for our good. So often we believe our prayers will be answered only if we do something to merit an answer. Since we know deep down that we have not been faithful to God, we feel we don't deserve what we are asking for. Therefore, we don't have confidence that he will answer. We must change our thinking. Never ask anything on the grounds of personal merit, but simply on the grounds of our relationship with a loving Father who takes a personal interest in us. After all, by his grace he made us his fraternity. The Lord Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew chapter 7 verse 11. 5. Since we are relying on our father's personal interest in us, and not our merits, we can freely confess our ignorance, our inability, and even our failure to him. If there is any guilt weighing on our conscience, we should confess it to him and get the burden lifted. He is more than ready to forgive, for he already settled the account when he gave his son to die on the cross for us. Thus we can have confidence as we present our problems to him. See 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, 6. Tell him what our problems are as honestly as we can. So often, when we don't really understand our problems, talking them over with our Father helps us get a clearer understanding of them. The very act of putting our problems into words gives us a clearer picture of them. Then too, telling him about them gives him an opportunity to give us a clearer picture of what our real need is. He invites us to bring our requests to him, but we are not telling him something he does not already know. In fact, he knows them better than we ever will. By unburdening our hearts to him, we get in touch with him about them. 7. Confidently expect that, because of his personal interest in us, he will give us the solution to our problems at the right time. This attitude opens the way for him to lead us into the right solution, or to solve our problems through divine intervention. The invitation to bring our requests to God, in everything by prayer and supplication, does not necessarily mean long hours spent on our knees pouring out our hearts in prayer. While quiet times are important, we cannot overstress the importance of constantly talking to God about everything during our daily activities. This is what is meant in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17, pray without ceasing, and in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18. Praying always. Habitually referring everything to our Father in the midst of our daily routine keeps us in touch with Him so that His peace can keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus.